0: Welcome to OBEHAVE, the behavioral science podcast from V Consulting.
1: But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior.
0: Daush and and Hamzard here. And um, I guess in terms of describing me, rather than looking at the the linear aspects of a career, there are a couple of guiding principles for me. One is to to succeed, serve and share, and and a second, to be curious, explore and learn new things. And I guess that's the joy of certainly what we'll be talking talking about today in terms of behavioural science and, and creative consulting, to be curious, to explore and to learn new things and obviously make a difference. So, that probably gives you a a rather different description of me as opposed to the usual career trajectory. And um, I'll hand over to Rory now to quickly
1: give an intro. No, I always think that's uh, brilliant, brilliant life advice, but not very good career advice. I always notice in business that the people who are principally motivated by curiosity... Have a much more interesting time and actually do more important work, but they always end up poorer than the people in business who are motivated by greed and power. So that's the one caveat I'd attach to that. It's very, very good lifestyle advice, but not very good financial advice. You know, you always notice that the curious people, you know, the kind of, you know, you, me, um, you know, I guess, you know, Dave Trott. Um, you know, uh, the Jeremy Bullmores, the kind of Peter Fields, all those people. The great thing is they're all still going at 50, 60, 70, 80. And that it's curiosity keeps you going. And, I, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I think actually Jeremy said a very wise thing about advertising. He said the thing about advertising is up to the age of about 35, it's just intrinsically fun. It's a kind of crazy business and the the whole kind of drama and excitement and pace and and, 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 um, and, and you know, and the kind of, you know, the gamesmanship of it is intrinsically fascinating and rewarding. But Jeremy said if you want to keep going after about 35, you've got to get curious. You've got to start asking yourself, how does this work? What's it for? What part does it play in the economy? But isn't that the... God, I saw the Shawshank Redemption a few nights ago yet again, and I
0: must confess to being in that minority that saw it in the cinema a good couple of decades ago. That,
1: that, that puts you and in a you... tiny... Because it, it got big on VHS video. It was a catastrophe oh, at the box office. I'm glad you said VHS video. Yeah, pre-DVD.
0: So, yes, it was By the way, video. for anybody
1: working for WPP, VHS video uh, was an early form of kind of YouTube. I just thought i better explain that to the younger demographics. And um, yes, just think about tapes as well. But um, boy,
0: that was a time. Yes, but get busy living and get busy di- or get busy dying. And I guess curiosity is the the former. There, get busy living and discover those things that will make a difference and that are inherently more fun. Well, I guess Rory, you would say also more oblique in nature.
1: Yes, I think that's interesting because um, I think uh, one of the great benefits of curiosity is there's always you know a kind of direct crude um what you might call brute force solution to a problem but the advantage that curiosity brings is that it may it may be actually one of the reasons we become a bit curious when we're older is that we've got less energy we haven't quite got the energy for the brute force solutions anymore and we look for those oblique solutions where you kind of come in at an angle where you solve things uh, not head on but by a, you know a kind of systemic intervention that one or two removes from what you're trying to achieve and i always think you know i always think that systems thinking uh, is an essential I and mean, systems and network thinking is an uh, as an essential a part of uh being a good marketer as for example behavioral economics i mean i think really to be a complete Uh, To be what you might call a creative consultant or a kind of advisor in solving business problems rather than just communication problems, you've got to have the mentality of um, understanding business systemically as a complex system, and you've got to understand network effects. And it's interesting, I often describe marketing as, now interesting, I didn't know this until recently, Kotler said, marketing is a branch of economics. And when you think about it, everything in heterodox economics, not mainstream economics, because mainstream economics is completely marketing free because it assumes perfect information and perfect trust. Okay, but everything in heterodox economics, maybe even Marxism, okay, has something to teach marketers, whether it's behavioural economics, ergodicity economics, network economics, complexity economics. All of these interesting new fields in economics are really, really rich territory for anybody in marketing. But this is the key thing. When you go to the economic value, you would
0: say behavior has a value attached to it, and attitude does not in comparison. And I think that's where a lot of marketeers are challenged. We talk about attitudinal change, but so what? You need the behavioral change. So that probably can extend to, we look at what's happening in the world at the moment. The next revolution is not really technological, but is actually psychological and behavioral. So, marketeers should be coming to the fore right now and driving growth using behavioural science techniques and psychological insight.
1: And I think, I mean, I suppose the thing that really preoccupies me um, at the age of 54 is that the older I get, the now, you know, a, a, an element of this is probably self-interested and wishful thinking. But I always thought instinctively that um, the major constraint on economic growth, economic progress, and for that matter, societal and environmental progress, the big bottleneck is now a marketing problem, not really a production or distribution or manufacturing problem. But I always thought, well, that's obviously um, a, a mindset I would adopt because of my Time in advertising. I spent my entire time in marketing, so I tend to see things through a marketing lens. And obviously, this is a ludicrous thing to believe because nobody in economics would suggest it. And then I discovered Koptler said it. Uh, He said that the problem now is not a shortage of goods, it's a shortage of customers and actually there's a very good italian economist called mario fabri who believes that the biggest constraint on progress if you look at the fact that american economic growth if you treat america as pretty much the most advanced economy for the last certainly the last 50 years certainly post war and possibly before the uk might have been in the you know in i don't know 1890 But if you look at the U.S. as the most advanced economy, he says that if you look at its economic growth, it's kind of 2% a year, and that doesn't change. And he says the constraint there isn't really around distribution, it's around behavioural change, that there is a pace at which people can adopt new products and services, and it's constrained by mental and behavioural limits, not by limits, constraints on production. But what you've got there is more marginal growth. So even when you talk about the
0: U.S.A. like that, I think it was, um, it was Danny Quay at the LSE who said that the, the world's economic centre of gravity has moved from somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean in the 1980s to now being east of Iran. And for that kind of seismic change to happen, you've got to have disruptive behaviour, disruptive change, and not incrementalism for that level of change to happen
1: Yes, and I—I I, I mean, I would argue also that you know, this is, by the way, a, a lot of a lot of the time when I say this, people say you're disparaging scientists, and that's not my point. My point is that um, without science, there is no progress. But science, which isn't adequately marketed, in other words, new progress, which is badly or inadequately uh, accompanied by behavioural change thinking. Actually, either goes nowhere. I'm sure there are brilliant inventions, by the way, that became adopted 30 years too late or not at all because they were promoted in the wrong way. Okay, if you look at it, you know, Zoom, it took a pandemic to get people to really adopt it to any sensible extent. And so it's emphatically not disparaging the importance of technological progress. It's not saying, don't worry, you can make solar panels that are rubbish and really expensive, and with good marketing, people will put them on the roof. It's merely saying that where the constraint lies... Um, is not always in technology. It's in willingness to change behavior in response. And it's, it's wonderful, by the way. I, I love looking at historical advertising. And we forget this now because any really successful product is becomes almost a utility. Now, if you go back to the 1920s, you can see reams and reams of advertisements encouraging people to install electricity in their house. Now, if you bought a house which wasn't on the grid because, I don't know, you decided to become a survivalist or something, right? The first thing you do if you bought a barn that wasn't connected to the mains is you'd get a mains power installed because without it, you wouldn't have electric yeah. drills. Now, to people who'd learned to live without electricity, electricity was a much more marginal benefit than to people who've actually grown up thinking of it as essential. And the fascinating thing, there's a lovely advertisement. I adore it. It's for the Dublin Corporation, who are the electricity providers to Dublin in the 20s. And it's selling electricity at home through the benefit of an electric kettle over a gas kettle. OK. And I can imagine myself in the shoes of the copywriter going, how the hell do I really say that there's a benefit to an electric kettle over a gas kettle? Because to be honest, there isn't much. OK. And there are these wonderful lines in it, such as, well, here we are having a cup of tea, Maureen, and rather than having to go to the stove every time I want to top up the teapot, I have the kettle here between us on the table. And then she says, and every evening um, I take the kettle upstairs to my bedroom so I can make a cup of tea in the morning before I come downstairs. Now, <laughs> these are both perfectly plausible behaviours when you suddenly have an electric kettle. Nobody has ever adopted those behaviours. We did have the teas made. admittedly. Did you, have a, side, did you ever have a teas made? Yeah, and actually, I, I might, in one of my mischievous moments, I might try and persuade Nespresso to produce something similar, which is the Nespresso made. Um, the problem was always the milk, because I think it preceded the yep. mini fridge, wasn't it? So you effectively let your milk go off overnight. But what, not, what, I, what I loved yeah. about that advertisement is, first of all, the very idea that you have to persuade someone to get electricity. But you did. I mean, people were terrified of it, by the way. And people thought that if you left a plug socket switched on without a plug in it, the electricity would leak into the room. And we, of course, forget all these things once the marketing's done its job. And it's very, very dangerous to look at innovation um, with the benefit of hindsight, because with the benefit of hindsight, everything seems obvious. But it wasn't obvious to consumers at the time. But isn't that the joy of marketing, I think? The challenge we have,
0: particularly in today's world, is to balance the, I guess, the science of marketing with the romance of marketing and bring that narrative to life. And obviously, we have folks that rely on the, the rational the science, the left brain approach. And yet we've got consumers that can be seduced by the, the right brain and romantic side of it. So just by balancing those, we're able to move into new markets and create new opportunity.
1: I'll give you you a lovely example of this, and I think this is a large part of the problem, which is the Austrian School of Economists, Hayek and people, were very alert to this, which is what you might call quantification bias. And the problem we face is that the forces we deal with are very, very important and powerful. And in many cases, by the way, very rational or sensible, if looked at through a kind of evolutionary lens in particular. But we don't have metrics for them. And so in the quest for business to pretend, and by the way, this isn't just business, it's economics, to try and present what is a social, connected, complex entity as though it were a physics problem with a single right answer. We lose out because our forces don't have metrics. There are no SI units for anxiety. Okay, let's say, okay, you have a product and it's selling not particularly excitingly and you drop the price. Now, because you've dropped the price, you'll probably put a sticker on the thing saying 10% off or 20% extra free. And you might even put 20% extra free this month only. Okay. Now, to an economist, there is only one thing going on there. There is reduction in price, increase in demand. And he will attribute 100% of the behavioral change to the thing that he measures, which is price, because there's a numerical value for it. Okay. Now, in reality, the thing that caused the people to buy it may be one they noticed it because it said 10% off on the thing or 10% extra free. So it might be attention. tension, okay? It could be that people are bargain hunters and disproportionately just like a deal. Now, that's nothing to do with the price, by which I mean is if you kept the price the same, and obviously it's not legal to do this, okay? But if you kept the price the same and put 10% extra free and a big flash on it, they would have bought it anyway at the higher price, okay? It could be that the fact that the higher price is only for three weeks That actually triggers their scarcity value and causes them to buy. Okay, so now there are lots of explanations for why the change in price changed behavior, but an economist will only look at the price itself as objectively perceived and not the other explanations. And so that thing of just because it makes sense doesn't mean it's true is a vital thing to understand because in most cases there's a lot going on, okay? you know I, you know now i have bought things i bought my wife on tk Maxx a t-shirt that was reduced to 40 quid from 200 okay now to be honest i wouldn't have bought that t-shirt had it cost 40 quid except for the fact that i wanted to discover what a 200 quid t-shirt was like Because I didn't see how any sane person could pay 200 quid for a T-shirt. So I wanted to see what the hell was going on. Now, those are cases where actually, of course, it's the discount that's actually creating the motivation, not the reduction in price. Now, of course, to an economist, there is no distinction between those two. Uh, Jeremy Jeremy has made the point that economists don't distinguish between a bonus and a bribe but humans emotionally detect a difference between I am being bribed to buy this product because it's shit versus this product is being sold by a generous-minded person who's throwing in a bit of extra value for free as a gesture of long-term goodwill. But isn't this this the beauty
0: where we can come in as, well, when I say marketeers, we've got to be clear how we define marketing. So there's a large school of thought that will will go down a rung and say, well, what colour are the crayons? There's another school of thought that will say, well, we're the, dri- the drivers of growth. We're the engines of growth. So we start this challenge over defining marketing. But obviously, as an engine of growth, we can ask those nuanced questions and start to develop ways forward to build value. Absolutely right. To deliver, however we're going to measure it, consumer
1: utility and consumer happiness or citizen happiness in our in our current business. Yeah, no 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 this this applies, by the way, everything from a cafe, uh, you know, with tw- you know, twenty customers a day and a turnover of hundred pounds a day, all the way up to government. Absolutely yeah. true. It's totally scalable, it's kind of fractal. And the same patterns recur, by the way. That's the fantastic thing. But you're right, we look we, we can often look back and, and rationalise, and I guess,
0: again, given the times we're living in, it's trying to look forward. And the only way to, to predict the future is to sometimes invent it. And I'll go back to early experience at Orange and the way we try to invent the future and make a better world or make technology our servant as opposed to the, the other way around just by understanding customers and not actually the things they can't tell us but inventing things that would make life better for them without putting a direct value on it. And that might take you back a, a good couple of decades Rory,
1: when I was at Orange. And uh, Dauchin's very modest, by the way. He's been a, a senior, a very senior marketer on Hugo Boss well, uh, at, at PG. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's it's not really about the positions, it's the changes
0: that we can make. Yeah. And I appreciate that. But if, if I go back to Orange and some of those early behavioral insights we had, and I know some of your team were keen to understand what got us, you know, what really resonates between us, it's just understanding some of those early insights a couple of decades ago, where you're trying to change behavior. You're trying to get people to make something more everyday. So you look at other examples. I remember at Orange, back in, I think it was 1998, when less than 5% of the UK had a mobile phone, we were talking about Orange as your global companion to be used seamlessly like a Visa card, which seemed bonkers back then. But suddenly, we got the insights right, we looked at some of the behavioral aspects, of resistance to use, and we broke through them. You know, the cliche was the future's bright, the future's orange, and it was for a few a few years after that, until um corporate matters changed. But I think there are plenty of examples there, um, particularly when we look at technology, of understanding behaviour and actually inventing the future, because there was no Snook- research telling us what to do. Snook was a kind of Steve Jobs of mobile, wasn't he? Yeah, I think, well, because um- he was Hans was an interesting character, but he um, yeah, he, he probably pioneered the dress-down approach for um, city analyst meetings and corporate meetings and having the, the simple uniform of a, you know, a black roll neck or a, a simple T-shirt and a jacket. So, yes, he was. But those are the kinds of maverick leaders that we need that can deal with disruption, whether you're talking about Steve Jobs or Hans Snook. But those leaders that don't follow the traditional left brain, linear thinking path, but can shift seamlessly into the right brain and the oblique, and be comfortable operating in that fashion. And I think many organizations struggle with those that use the right hemisphere, and they can't put them in a box. And as you were saying earlier, I think, Chris Gray's quote, we just struggle to put a metric
1: around it. It it, it it is is literally, it's the terror of the unquantifiable, you see, that you have people who, whose comfort zone resides entirely in the numerical. Can I just say, that would be a great film title, The Terror of well, the well, Unquantifiable. That would be a yeah, great no, no, movie or documentary. It is genuinely the fit. Now, interestingly, I've got a vague hunch that you could solve this problem. I occasionally use a phrase which is emotional efficiency, because my point is that the purpose of a product is to generate an emotion deep down. Okay, now this, by the way, becomes understanding the real emotional thing that you are delivering to a customer. And by the way, understanding it better than they themselves understand it, because, you know, the emotions are often generated in parts of the brain that don't do the talking. And understanding that under COVID, of course, becomes much more important because Gerd Gigerenzer writes this fantastic piece, which is, in times of great change, it's unbelievably dangerous to optimise on the past. Because things have changed and therefore those who optimize on the past tend to end up going bust because they're not They're they're, Now, if you look at it, most business treats consumer demand essentially as an extrapolation from past behaviors, which is safe in the short to medium term. But in a time of great change like this, for example, is unbelievably dangerous. You know, we all could see that air travel was threatened by the adoption of video conferencing, but it didn't seem to be happening at any great speed. So people ignored it. Okay, But then you look at a
0: linear relationship there. So, yeah, of course, statement. The only way to invent the future is to predict it. And if we're talking about innovation, disruption, transformation, mass change, you know, the the term blue ocean strategy is to is to invent that future and to be bold in our thinking. But that requires a different kind of leadership and a different kind of thinking. We've mentioned a couple of examples already um, to what we have today and to navigate our way forward.
1: And I I do think it's possible that we could actually generate, albeit only for what I mean, not to the same level of purity as exists in physics. But then uh, probably one of the best living mathematicians in the world, a guy called Stephen Wolfram, always believes that physicists cheat. Because they define their science around those very small parts of um, uh, of the world, which can be solved by pure quantification equations, okay? And, you know, mo- most things, you know, are like three-body problems, four-body problems. They're highly complex, okay? But physics defines as physics those things that you can solve using kind of Newtonian thinking. And Wolfram's belief is that this is a bit of a con, because... When you can't solve the problem, you claim it lies outside your discipline. Now, marketers don't have that luxury. We don't have the luxury of saying, ah, if it isn't actually completely quantifiable and solvable by equations, it is isn't marketing. We've got to solve these problems when they come to us. Regardless, we don't have that luxury of saying, ah, unfortunately, that isn't a marketing problem anymore because I can't solve it. But that is the beauty, so, isn't it? I mean... That is
0: a, the beauty of the thing, thing. The science and the romance. And was it Dostoevsky who said, Beauty will save the world? Now, I'm not saying a marketeer here is going to be you know, Superman or Wonder Woman or anything like that. But the beauty of bringing together the science and the romance. And I think you also termed, you used the term emotional efficiency. Yeah. And that's key here. Connecting with customers and whether it's inventing the future or better understanding them attaching a value to behavior, that emotional efficiency can drive us forward. You talk, you mentioned briefly the airline industry. I mean, the airline industry, obviously, not just because of Zoom, but just not people flying at the moment, is going through a terrible time. A board meeting for a typical airline has changed. They're not talking about oil prices, future pricing, options, what have you. There's a fundamental behavioral question here. How do I get more bums on seats? And suddenly, what we have during this disruptive period of whether it's COVID-19 and digital disruption, etc., are questions being asked at the highest level that deal with psychology, that deal with customers. Pretty much every major question a board will be asking. But it's powerful when you understand it. Sorry to cut across to you, though. It's powerful when you understand it because this comes down to your, your theory of constraints and you can design services and products
1: with bottlenecks in place. Uh, And often, of course, those very questions are annoying to the left brain mentality because they're adding further uncertainty. You know, the last thing you want is someone coming into your meeting and saying, are you sure it's all about that? I remember a wonderful thing talking to someone in AI and they just spent they just spent a lot of time, very brilliantly, using artificial intelligence to reduce the noise made by it was either an electric razor or an electric toothbrush. It was one or the other. And I came in and said, I'm not sure, I can understand why an engineer would want to do that, because producing a beautifully silent electric toothbrush or razor would be a lovely thing to tell all your engineering mates. Okay. I'm not sure consumers don't partly judge the efficacy of the machine by the noise it makes. So actually, you may need to introduce an art. And we also use the noise, by the way, as a feedback mechanism to know how hard to push. And it's the noise made by your electric razor that that tells you it's doing a good job. And so you could actually produce an electric razor, which... Had, was optimised against completely the wrong metric. And so I said that the other thing the AI won't have told you is you may need to add a loudspeaker inside the electric toothbrush and have it generate rather like the new Jaguar, the electric Jaguar, kind of artificial engine noise. Mention the brand, you know, brand A
0: of my electric toothbrush versus the sonic brand B. I prefer brand A because of the sound it's making and I feel it's doing a better job. But you can't measure how I feel and you need that insight inherently so emotional efficiency is
1: certainly the way forward and hence the need for well the argument is th- something something that's emotionally efficient actually or perceptually efficient in this case is a television okay because it doesn't bother producing the color yellow because in the human eye is only sensitized, and that's true of gorillas and higher primates, but it's not true of your dog or your cat or your monkey or whatever, You know, assuming it's a lower monkey. I don't know what a lower monkey is. But it only detects red, green, and blue. Okay, And all the other colors are extrapolated by the relative strength of those three stimuli. And so your Samsung television, which claims to produce a million colors, is telling the truth, but it isn't your television that's producing the colors. It's your head. And, and so you could, if you wanted to produce an objective television, you'd you'd try and fit fit yellow into each pixel. But the reason you don't bother is because firing red and green at equal strength and keeping the blue switched off produces exactly the same impression in the brain as firing yellow light at the brain. And therefore, you don't bother to do the things that don't actually have an emotional or perceptual impact. And in the same way, you do the things which have maximal perceptual impact, which in these cases are, you know, not not ultraviolet or whatever. It's red, green, blue. And so in the same way, when you design a product or service, you should look to maximize uh, the extent to which the product delivers against the things that people unconsciously care about. Now, that might be, for example, I would argue, by the way, regret minimization. In other words, anything that reassures someone that a product is unlikely to occasion regret is going to be a pretty strong force in, uh, you know, in, in behavior. And so the, my argument is that brands mostly work in, in terms of the elimination of negatives rather than the delivery of positives. And we spend all our time in advertising talking about brand adjectives as if they're positives, like fresh, forward-looking contemporary you know etc and actually you know the biggest the biggest brand metric really when i pay an 150 bucks more for a samsung tv is unlikely to be a crock of shit okay (laughs) right now you need to understand ergodicity economics to understand why this is because we've evolved to minimize downside variance in our decisions because utility
0: So this ties in with the theory of constraints or bottlenecks. If you're designing a service or an experience, you can actually design it in such a way to take advantage of that consumer unease and you'll put a bottleneck in place where the consumer will accept it. So for example, with airline, with air travel, if you put the bottleneck in place of passport control, I'm willing to wait because I know I have to go through this. It's out of the airline's responsibility And then coming out of passport control, hopefully I'll get my baggage quickly. If the bottleneck is waiting for my luggage after passport control, there's a problem for the airline. So you can actually design experiences to maximise the consumer view and consumer love and take advantage
1: of emotional efficiency. That's one of the the examples I'll bring to life. Well, I'll give you another example, which is... um... I think the best bit of advice I gave in my entire working life, at least to date, probably, was to say to British Airways there is a monumental difference between looking at a departure board and seeing delayed and looking at a departure board and saying delayed 90 minutes or delayed. Forty minutes, or whatever, even delayed one hundred and twenty minutes for many trips is is mentally manageable. We go okay, uh, you know. I, I was talking about this to a Swiss audience when I got when I ever had flight delays at Geneva Airport. I used to go and get my hair cut because there was quite a good barber there. Um, one of the anomalies of Geneva Airport. It also had another anomaly, which was having a bloody great Swiss Army knife shop after security control. So <laughs> you went through you went through a load of X ray machines, and then there was a guy there selling you enormous knives. Which didn't really make sense to me, but anyway, we'll park that. We'll
0: park and that, yeah.
1: um, um, but the the interesting thing is that this is what you might call the huge danger of spurious correlation and confounding variables. Okay, if you want to get nerdy about it, which is most data doesn't capture the truth, it merely captures numerical aspects of the whole truth. Okay. And the interesting thing is. When I said that just because something makes sense doesn't mean it's true, what tends to happen in business and what also tends to happen in the minds of consumers is that when they can come up with a sense-making explanation for something, they basically regard that as the whole truth and they don't dig any deeper. And so airlines would try and maximize punctuality and consumers would say, I hate it when my plane's late. Okay. now when consumers say, I hate it when my plane's late, that's sort of true. In that people don't like delays, but the emotional pain of the delay was c- caused much more by the not uncertainty very, very around well. it than it was by the the duration, if you like. So but not meant- the curiosity comes in to dig and dig. Exactly, deeper. exactly. It's
0: a very simple yep. insight. It's not that my plane is late. Is my plane is late, and I don't know how much. So how do I spend the next two hours? Getting some food,
1: cutting my hair, doing some work. David Rock, who's a neuroscientist, has this wonderful model, SCARF, which is status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, fairness, things that humans care very deeply about, which we don't know how to measure and which economists ignore completely. And so the engineers will be treating that as an engineering problem. How do we, you know, ensure extraordinary levels of punctuality? Now, in truth, not many people allow so small a margin of error for their travel. Um Uh, that they actually, you know, time it to within five minutes of perfection. Most people build in a buffer. And so the word delayed is terrifying because, A, you've got to keep staring at the departure board every three minutes to see if there's an update. And secondly, because your brain immediately starts imagining the worst-case scenario. So you have bad news but not enough information to respond to it. You know, it's a bit like saying to someone, you might have cancer. You know, it's an unbelievably stressful state of affairs to place someone. Because they immediately start assuming the worst. And of course, they're right when they say, I don't like it when my plane's delayed. But the problem isn't actually the punctuality issue. It's the uncertainty issue. And because they correlate, and because there's a numerical measure for punctuality, but there isn't a numerical measure for passenger uncertainty, we focus on solving the really expensive problem which is hard to solve, rather than focusing on the psychological problem, which is comparatively easy to solve. I mean, do, do, you don't... One like... example of addressing this would be Uber.
0: Uber with a map. Absolutely perfect example. Yeah. taking away the uncertainty of, how long do I have to wait for my taxi? Or, where is my taxi? And if I can see that you're five minutes away and, you know, half a kilometre, I feel a lot more easy and you've addressed some of my basic needs.
1: Now, imagine if Uber had tried to actually reduce wait time rather than reducing the emotional pain of uncertainty around the wait. You know, you would have needed a fleet of twice as many cars. You'd need kind of predictive algorithms dotting them all over the city. First of all, it would be something you couldn't achieve until you'd attained vast scale to begin with. You know, and by giving you the number of the driver and by also giving you the map, Uh, And by also, you know, giving you little updates. And also, by the way, before you even book, it gives you an estimate of wait time. All those three things are significantly reducing the pain of uncertainty around the booking and and waiting for a cab.
0: But again, we go back to those two words of emotional efficiency. Yeah. You ask the right question. And again, the trouble with the, the rational, the left brain, the logical, we will ask the easiest question, which may not be the right question. For transformative change, by asking the right question, yeah. put the power in our hands to invent that future and achieve the transformative change. But this comes back to well, the two C words. We started the conversation in terms of you know one of the the aspects that resonates between us is curiosity. But I guess the other C word is comfort. As an as a, you know, as a culture, yeah. we're very comfortable being comfortable, but to move forward. We need to be uncomfortable being comfortable and comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think some of the examples we've shared here are in that sphere of being comfortable with the uncomfortable to deliver truly transformative change.
1: And this, this comes into, by the way, an understanding, particularly if you look at status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, fairness, which I don't think is a complete list. And I'd love to actually spend some time, maybe a month by the sea, staring into space, trying to expand that list. And also develop sort of metrics for it so that we could start to say, if you do X, you it's what is the cheapest way of reducing reducing. Uncertainty, the sea of scarf, in other words, rather than what is the cheapest way of reducing wait time, which is an engineering approach to the same problem. And if we if we actually did that, I think the gains you could have in economic value uh, at uh, actually an extraordinary low level of uh, you know, because let's face it, information is generally very environmentally friendly, whereas having cabs waiting by with their engines running isn't. Okay. You know, I mean, I think the way in which you can achieve genuine emotional efficiency, and of course, evolutionary biologists have always understood this because they deal in, a, in an evolutionary system, not an equilibrium system. They always refer to the proximate reason or the proximate explanation and the ultimate explanation, you know, and proximate things would be, you know, in evolution, there's always a deep evolutionary cause for things. You know, you know a proximate explanation might be people find this attractive. And the ultimate explanation is because we've evolved to find symmetry attractive in other people because it's a reliable proxy for genetic fitness or something like that. And so those organisms with a preference for symmetry tended to outcompete those organisms which didn't have it. And so you can always go one layer deeper. Whereas what business wants and what economics wants and what sort of what I call scientists Sorry, scientistic people want, not scientific, but scientistic people want, is a plausible catch all explanation at the proximate level, after which they stop digging. And hence the need for
0: curiosity. You make a distinction there between scientist and scientific and
1: scientistic. Yes. It's a very useful... This gets us back to the Austrians, by the way, because um, I was always baffled by the fact that Kotler was supposed to have said what gets measured gets managed in an approving way because, of course, he was Austrian. His dad was Schumpeter's best mate. And Austrian school economics is characterised by a deep level of scepticism about the extent to which you can capture human motivation in numerical form. And so, you know... Austrians are much, much more sceptical about attempts to quantify uh, than non-Austrian economists would be. So it always struck me as a really weird thing for him to say, and I was greatly relieved to discover that he never said it. Well,
0: we we have the Fridgeway to thank for that.
1: Yeah. And I guess it also takes us
0: into the realm of again, times we're living in and inequality being highlighted, but the differences between folk, differences between people, The D word again coming up, diversity, and just trying to get those differences bought out in making better decisions and making those better decisions where we balance the way things used to be with the rather more alternate thinking and creative thinking that others can bring to the
1: party and being comfortable with that. So we're frozen out of debate by our lack of of quantification, in a way, I think. A cultural view about yeah. a lack of measurement,
0: as opposed to the emotional view of what can truly drive change. And if you look at the seismic changes over the last few decades, particularly in the technological sphere, you wouldn't you wouldn't say that there was market. I speak market here as well. There was definite market research that led to a rational way forward for all of the millions of apps and technologies that have come out of mobile digital and the internet, they were disruptive, they weren't predicting, even if I go back to the times, you know, my, my limited experience at Orange and in the internet industry, there were things that we did because it felt right, because we believed they would make a meaningful difference. And sometimes you're going to have to go with that, as opposed to just the, the rational, incremental, one and a half to two percent growth that you're forecasting Um, to the city
1: I think this is absolutely true and I think there's an interesting you know question about the relationship that, that why it is that large organizations are very unsuccessful with a few exceptions you know Nestle and Nespresso would be a good case Apple obviously is a good exception IBM is an exception actually with the PC division but why they tend to be unsuccessful at breakthrough innovations. And part of that, I think, is explained by the innovator's dilemma. But part of it's probably explained by metrics effectively becoming prisoners of their own established metrics. Because really, really big innovations essentially depend on, in a sense, rewriting the rules of the game. In other words, this isn't about you know, how quickly your car turns up anymore. It's about how you feel while you're waiting for it. You might argue that Apple... I was with a bunch of very senior people from Nokia on the day the first iPhone came out. And... um, What was interesting is they were quite disparaging because they said, well, for a start, the battery life's terrible. It barely lasts the whole day. We know from our research into phones that battery life is decisive. And of course, actually, one of the great things about having a feature phone is the bugger did last for about 48 hours. But it turned out that Jobs was asking a different question, not what can this phone do, but what does it feel like while you're doing it? And it's also worth remembering, by the way, that in the very early days of the iPhone. It was kind of rubbish because there was no there was no app store, right? So what you had was a very cute calculator, the weather, a clock, okay, and a phone. You had a web browser, admittedly, okay. You had that, but actually, other than the extraordinary kind of emotional reward of using the touch screen interface, it wasn't really doing very much, okay, until the app store came along. It was, you know, a phone with a lovely interface. It wasn't really what the App Store turned it into as a completely new device altogether, I think. And um, I think that's the vital thing, which is a lot of innovation happens because someone realizes that a a market segment is over-optimized around certain metrics and just decides to essentially focus on something else and make that the prominent discriminator. I remember
0: that too and I just thought how beautiful it takes you back to being a child and you know for those of us who have young children as well you look at how a child interacts with things and yeah. uses their hands and fingers it's effectively the world as a touch screen for them and there's something quite beautiful about that interface that actually took us back to being a child in the way that we experience products and use them as opposed to the supposed to the the Nokia view, and you know, I've got to be honest, I still use a, a Nokia brick phone um, just because of the awesome battery life. I have one of those, and I do use it still. But the, as opposed to the ways of using those phones, of functionally pressing a button, then you're getting a certain utility and a certain feeling, even before all the apps were factored in. Just the simplicity of usage. And it's sometimes stepping back into that view. Um, I'll, I'll quote a designer here, um, a watch designer, Maximilian Busa, who's just the most phenomenal, I'd call him an artist, but watch designer and he says a, a creative adult is a child who has survived and I guess there are many creative adults that have that child who has survived within and can design things very simply and beautiful, beautifully to maximise the emotional efficiency. But I think... The most overused example.
1: I think in a way, what what's behind that design is the ability almost to, uh, this is using IT language, and it's a terrible analogy, but it's like running an amygdala emulator in your prefrontal cortex. You uh-huh. know what I mean? That you can, uh, the, 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 you, you know how you get those things where you can emulate on a PC, for example, you can emulate, okay. yep. you know, uh, an Atari Game Boy or whatever. Yeah. You know, you can emulate emulate something more primitive on a more modern piece of equipment. And of course, we've lost touch with our amygdala to a great extent because it doesn't do the it does the feeling, but it doesn't do the thinking and the talking. And so the ability to actually run emotional thoughts or understand emotional um, instincts in consciousness is kind of an act of emulation, which I think lies behind a lot of good design, which is. You know, consciously understanding how people act unconsciously, you know, Mm -hmm. there's an awful lot about door handles in the writing of um, uh, Don Norman, isn't it? A wonderful writer on the design of everyday things and understanding that if you put a pull like handle on a door, people will instinctively pull it, even if there's a word that says push above the handle and I was talking to someone about this there's someone in a hospital in the um near Carlisle who says nearly all are very unfairly doors that break the rule are occasionally called Don Norman doors even though he's you know it's, it, it's a rather cruel thing in the same way that the poor chap who who uh reinvented uh, France's Paris's uh sewage and waste system Pooh Bell got his yeah. name attached to a waste bin and so it's very I always feel that you know it's it's very unkind to this poor man who ended up. He was command cool. called. That's why the French go la poubelle because it's named after the guy who kind of invented the wheelie bin, the you know the 18th, 19th century French wheelie bin. Basically, I always said to Peter Basiljet, "You're very lucky that uh, the same didn't happen in English, you know, which is oh god, what do I do with this piece of shit? Oh, just chuck it in the basiljet." <laughs> okay. So, so in the same way, Paul Don Norman's actually had something very unfair named after him. But he said his hospital's full of these doors and everybody goes towards them, pulls, and it doesn't work. They have two seconds of irritation and then they push.
0: It was unfortunate. In Peter's case, it was his grandfather that invented the... the I think it was his great-great-grandfather, invented the whole sewage thing and also, yeah, yeah. I think when when Peter got his knighthood, it was said that it was his great-grandfather that took the sewage out of London, but courtesy of the programming of the great-grandson, he brought the sewage back in. I
1: remember reading that. Yeah, there is a certain opposition <laughs> to uh, the creators of reality TV. Yes, it has to be said. <laughs> I quite like yes, it. Yes, if um, your name gets attached to something like that. But it's a it's it's a fantastic thing that um, uh, you know the ability essentially to understand how our deeper motivations, which evolution has hidden from our eyes, and this is where you know. Uh, Robert Trivers comes in, which is the very fact that it just functions as a social species. You have to be able to disguise your your ultimate motivations. Okay.
0: Again, I'm going to go back to beauty will save the world. And to appreciate beauty is to see things in their proper place and their proper context. And I guess that's where the challenge is. What is their proper place and their proper context? And Mm. by asking those questions, by being curious, by moving into the uncomfortable we probably can discover what is the proper place and the proper context from some of the examples we've shared here today.
1: So, no, you're right about beauty. You're, you know, digging deeper as to why we care. I think costly signalling is very largely an instinctive... um, uh, I don't think it's a consciously reasoned instinct, okay? So the way I always describe costly signalling, which is the idea that advertising might be more potent if it's perceived to be costly to produce and costly doesn't necessarily mean expensive by the way that could be the media cost it could be the celebrity involved it could be the craftsmanship involved in the typography or design of the advertisement it could be you know the fact that it's you know the headline is beautifully written but it suggests that effort and time that scarce resources have been invested in its creation or transmission. And the way I always describe that is no one, I'm willing to bet that no one listening to this podcast has ever thrown away a FedEx envelope that's been addressed to them unopened. You know, because you instinctively understand that someone has spent £8 to send this to me, therefore, the likely, this is of great importance to the sender, and and, and they have chosen to send this to me. So it shows conviction in some way in the sender, in a way that something dropped through your letterbox doesn't. Okay, Uh and we instinctively understand the difference between a door drop and a UPS express envelope. Okay, we we don't need to actually do the reasoning, we never do the reasoning, we just instinctively understand it. it, And in the same way, that business of digitizing advertising to make it efficient with the net effect that the consumer perceives it as cheap is arguably making advertising more efficient, but much less effective. And we see evidence of this in the recent Thinkbox research, which shows our degree of conviction in what an advertisement signals, and also trust, and also our perception of the fitness of the sender. In other words, this is a successful company because they're advertising here. Okay, is massively stronger on television and in broadcast media um uh that it is in even in say press and it's stronger in press or magazines than it is in digital of course
0: and perception matters
1: though. and perception matters because that's you know advertising doesn't work entire this is this is i think where we often go wrong in advertising which is the people who have taken control of the advertising industry are thinking of advertising as information not as signaling And so they're looking at it in a kind of Shannon way, which is how can we get the necessary number of bits to the necessary audience at as low a cost as possible without realising that the cost of transmission is part of the message. In behavioural change terms, in terms of, you know, as, as the glorious guy Don Marty, who's a wonderful thinker on this, really brilliant guy who worked for Mozilla for many years, he always used to say that when you see an ad for a car, it says, if it isn't a waste of time for Ford to spend £5 million advertising this car, it probably isn't a waste of time for me to at least give it a test drive. (laughs) Because it's a signal of their confidence in the likely popularity of the product, the fact that you're prepared to spend money up front in promoting it.
0: And that insight is so much more resonant today, the Mm signalling when we need our brands, our products, our services. To give us confidence and trust to move forward from the the situation that we're living through at the moment. So for those that are taking a more rational approach or a a more cost-effective approach, sorry, cost-efficient approach, I should say, we're going to lose trust. We're going to lose confidence when we need to give customers that confidence and trust to move forward out of the the situation that we're in, this post-pandemic era that we're going to be going through brands more than ever have to invest in those elements of emotional oh. resonance and giving that perception of confidence and trust to get us moving.
1: And also, um, also, innovative new businesses have to understand the real why, because otherwise what happens is you get trapped trying to innovate by incrementally improving the metrics of a pre-existing category which is essentially what Nokia were doing, okay? And they were doing it very well. And, I, you know, I love, I like you, I wish Nokia would bring back a whole range of Android phones because, you know, my affection for the brand still survives in many yeah. ways. So I'm not, I'm not dissing Nokia, but the innovation was to essentially... And sometimes, of course, big companies do it because they're forced to. So if you look at Cunard, okay, how Cunard responded to the invention of jet travel was essentially... Transatlantic liners competed on speed and you had the blue ribbon, which was, I think, the, the awarded to the fastest crossing from west yep. to east. OK, and then suddenly Boeing comes along and the blue ribbon becomes a total irrelevance because who cares whether it's four days, 11 hours or four days, 15, when yep. you can actually do it in both directions in under a day. Right. Irrelevant. So what Cunard did is essentially they re- they invented the cruise ship industry. And you, you look at the in, the innovations in cruise ships, uh, you, know, at, you know, balconies attached to cabins, for example. Most of those were pioneered by Cunard because they realized if we're going to retain any value from our ships, we've got to get people choosing on a different metric, which is the journey as part of the experience rather than the journey as irritating um. Uh, you know, as, as irritating lost time in between London and New York, or Southampton and New York. You've asked a different question. Yeah, you're asking a different question, which is where my Eurostar joke effectively came from,
0: which but is think if what you... What Cunard did there, and let's, uh, we'll, we'll come to Eurostar definitely, but when what Cunard did there was move into that Blue Ocean territory uncontested. As, um um yeah. a couple of professors at INSEAD who came up with that Blue Ocean strategy term but uncontested waters, no pun intended, where they owned that experience. They asked a question that wasn't being asked by those in travel. It was an experiential question, an emotional question. And, you know, Cunard were able to carve out the niche around that for a certain segment.
1: And if you think about it, nobody nobody says, I'm planning on going on a cruise holiday on this ship to get receive the response, really, how fast is it? Okay. <laughs> right so it's a
0: different question a different it's a different qu-
1: fundamentally different question and of course what cialdini's done in his wonderful work in persuasion is he shows that depending one depending on the frame of comparison that the decision maker brings to a decision you will arrive at different decisions and that it is in the power of the marketer to alter or reemphasize the kind of variables that people make in in in, in making a deci- use in making a decision now, so that's
0: where the opportunity is as marketers move forward and certainly try and forge their identity and be the engines of growth, particularly during these disruptive times. It's being able to reframe, being able to reframe the questions, ask those uncomfortable questions to move us away from incrementalism to truly alternate or innovative growth. And reframing is the most powerful concept within the marketer's armory. Um, and,
1: and by the way it also applies to price not only so you can reframe price oh. and value as well as reframing what a product is i mean i always tell this story so apologies for telling it again but the, w- the way that i persuaded my dad to get sky he's not remotely interested in um, sport or movies but he loves documentaries news and factual television okay and when it was 17 pounds a month he wasn't interested So I told him it was 60p a day. He still wasn't interested because he's good enough at maths to know that 60p a day is about £18 a month, Okay, But then I said, you spend £2 a day on newspapers. And suddenly the entire thing changed. I was at one stage offering to buy him Sky and he still wouldn't get it. And then when I explained that you spend £2 a day on newspapers, so is it that ridiculous to spend another 60p, i.e. 28%, getting 200 channels of factual television and the ability to record it uh, easily without getting angry with the video recorder, uh, that completely changed his comparative frame. In the same way that Nespresso, you know, is we compare it to Starbucks, we don't compare it to Maxwell House.
0: But my current favourite example of this would be be the Pret-a-Manger, £20 a month, drink as much coffee as you'd like. It's a really interesting idea, isn't it? I have to say... I drink across many of the the coffee brands, but if I was to look at the amount I spend on coffee at the end of the month, I'd be shocked. yeah because I'd be spending you know the high tens, you know not even quite close easily to hundred pound a month on coffee. Now, if I saw that, if I was forced to pay that pay that at the end of the month, Bill shock would be the under. under oh.
1: Oh if, Star- if if Starbucks charged if Starbucks charged through a monthly invoice, um they'd yeah. more you know actually, of course they keep some of their customers. You keep the kind of infrequent customers, they'd be fine because once a month you get an invoice for five pounds. But there must be people in London who spend seventy pounds a month on coffee, there take away
0: the coffee. Go out or take friends out or clients out, we grab that quick coffee. But if we're forced to
1: po- post pay it would hit us hard. We would realise, you know, what we're we well, paying for. Well, well, I mentioned earlier ergodicity economics. Of course, this is a yep. very interesting question here about pricing because uh, Amazon Prime is essentially an acknowledgement that ten people doing something once aren't the same as one person doing something ten times. Yep. So, just to give an example, okay, if you didn't have Amazon Prime, Amazon wouldn't really have. Uh, Many very frequent customers, because 10 people don't mind paying three pounds for delivery once a month. But one person, however rich, is going to balk at paying three pounds for delivery 10 times a month. Uh Okay, and so the the delivery charge in e-commerce is a major break, not on infrequent purchase, but it's a major break on, on more loyal, frequent users, whoever they may be. And actually, I know one large e-tailer, when they introduced an equivalent to Amazon Prime, it's a fashion, high-end fashion retailer, and they've got um, an equivalent of Amazon Prime. Okay, I'll tell you, go to Selfridges, okay. And they (laughs) by the way, it's one of the best bargains in retail, Selfridges plus £10 a year. You get next day delivery free for a year for one £10 payment. Now, designated our next day delivery, which they offer for free once you've joined this program actually costs about £8 if you pay for it one one go at a time. One time, yeah. So you've only got to buy twice from Selfridges and your quids in. Apparently, I think the average number of purchases annually uh, for people who joined this programme went from one to five. Now, we understand ergodicity in certain contexts. So season tickets are evidence of ergodicity. You can charge infrequent train travellers much more for a journey they make once a quarter. You can't charge the same price for someone making the journey every day. Okay, so the season ticket is acknowledgement that one that commuting is not commutative. Um, But often in pricing, we don't understand this. And we think because because of the economic idea of utility, we think that actually readiness to pay is constant, whether someone's a very frequent buyer. Now, I think what's true is that very frequent buyers really resent recurrent charges for things like delivery. Correct. But, but know, it's also and so,
0: it's not just the, the economic understanding. Of race so so race that, race that, idea, race, that idea of PRET, 20, it's not, so it's
1: 20 quid a month, 20 quid a month, and we'll basically give you as much coffee as you like. But it's only if I'm right, it's only one coffee at a time, isn't it? You can't just go and order a tray. Of ten is, for I think your you've day. got something
0: like a half an hour gap between when you can buy the next coffee. <laughs> so I, mean, I don't know how that will work if you're trying to treat someone, except you'll take the bill of
1: one person. They have the advantage there that if you really were trying to game the system, you'd probably die of a caffeine overdose. So uh, yeah, you'd be be walking down, you know, a typical
0: (laughs) high street with several stops, with several sorry, pret, and then stopping every what thirty-one minutes. Yeah, game the system, and I'm sure there's one customer who's trying to do that. But it's just interesting that they can come up with a proposition at a time like this to drive traffic, to drive value. It'd be great to see what the talking about metrics. But some of the metrics are behind that, but they've asked a different question to come up with that pricing mechanism. And I guess we often confuse pricing with loyalty you know, we discount prices and we call it loyalty when actually all we're doing is discounting. But if we take a definition of loyalty as eliminating random behavior or generating more consistent behavior, yes, the proposition that Press have put in place is going to eliminate. The fact that I might go to a Nero, a Costa, a Starbucks, a Pret over the course of two days, and you're going to guarantee a certain level of behaviour via that simple proposition of getting me into a Pret more often. And then you have
1: the incremental value of food sales. You have footfall. This is
0: Um, it, isn't it? The the ancillary income could be quite significant.
1: It's interesting interesting that that Pret introduced that during a pandemic, a time of desperation, Um, Bezos did not introduce Amazon Prime at the time of a pandemic, but he came across huge opposition from almost everybody within Amazon when he tried to introduce Amazon Prime. And he had the great advantage that having founded the company and being entirely in charge of it, Um, There are people, by the way, and I think we ought to, um, funnily enough, he's just issued a very pessimistic prediction on future business air travel, basically saying it ain't coming back. Robert Crandall of American Airlines is one of the people I utterly venerate, because he was one of those people a bit like Bezos, who just say, we're going to try this big thing now he invented the frequent flyer program. He more or less invented online. Well, in, well, what I mean computerized booking with a thing called Sabre. If you remember Sabre was spelled Sabre was spelled, Sabre was spelled saber with two A's and the two A's are actually from American airlines who are the people who kind of instigated it and then made it the standard. Okay. And Crandall, Crandall was full of these extraordinary, I mean, brilliant, brilliant ideas. Some of them failed, by the way. He had this extraordinary idea, rather like Pret and rather like Amazon Prime. He introduced this thing where you could pay two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and get free first class travel on American Airlines for life. Now, bear in mind that was done, I think, in the late seventies, early eighties, <laughs> and that quarter of a million dollars was a real lot of money back then. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh. It was sort of successful and it brought in a lot of sudden revenue. Uh, Unfortunately... they underestimated the extent to which people would game the system. And they spent effectively years trying to buy people out of the arrangement because there were people literally who would, you know, if you've got $6 million in the bank, okay, and you go, oh, you know, screw it, I'll give half a million dollars to American Airlines and I'll never have to pay for a flight again in my life. And these people were literally doing things like, uh, you know, two people in Chicago would go, mate, do you fancy going to London for lunch tomorrow? And, of course, it was first class, so you also stuffed yourself in the lounge, you necked back the finest wines known to humanity. You know, you could really, really milk that system if you wanted to. And unfortunately, in a way, because it's an interesting idea, though, an environmental catastrophe, arguably. Well, I don't know. But, I mean, uh, the the interesting issue was that uh, the the ability to game the system was too great. Now, in coffee or in Amazon-ness, you know, I mean, it does cost Amazon a lot of money, Prime, but I think it's fair to say that without it... You know, people be going, I think I might buy something else on Amazon next month. Or we'd be waiting <laughs> for five days to consolidate our orders, and therefore we'd buy
0: less. of notional value. You're talking yeah. about a first-class air ticket. Yeah. I'm going to wind the clock back about three decades when I, I went to the States for the first time, and I had access to the Delta Air Pass. It gave you one month, I think it was, of unlimited air travel on standby. But it led to irrational behaviour. So there were times when I was, I was a student, let me add, I was running out of cash and I would get an overnight flight and being Delta, your hub was Atlanta, Georgia, but you would fly coast to coast overnight. So you'd get your dinner.
1: And a place a to sleep. Plane,
0: and get your breakfast.
1: Oh, I never realised that existed. Oh, how extraordinary. I do we're know one other thing.
0: Air Pass, and this
1: was, my card we're going to the oh, early 90s. I do know a very funny story about Standby, by the way, which is, I think it might have been Southwest Airlines, but it might have been Delta, who used to put the names of the standby passengers up on the departure board for domestic flights. So it would say, uh, you know, here... So so you'd have the names displayed, you see, and it would say, you know, yeah. Mr. P, P. Johnson would be number one, and, you know, S. So and so. And they were told by Data Protection that this was effectively an invasion of privacy because you were revealing to the public the names of people about to board a flight, you see. So they took to using the first three letters of the sur- uh, of the surname, followed by the initial. Oh no! And a wonderful idea until, as a friend of mine showed me a photograph of a uh, Mister Terry Cunliffe, <laughs> who, was, <laughs> who was shortlisted to pour the flat. And um, I don't know what they I don't know what they've done since, but um, the first three letters of Cunliffe followed by the initial of Terence. <laughs> So essentially, if we're to kind of sum this all up, I've, I've spent to some extent part of lockdown <coughs> realising that in a weird way, I've been kind of wasting my time because about 80% of what I said, which I thought was kind of new or insightful, is already sitting there in marketing experts of the last century. And in particular, there's someone who probably most people in marketing have never heard of called Al Roe Alderson, who was kind of the great marketing guru of the, I suppose, the late middle of the last century. It's also there in people like Peter Drucker in particular. And the fundamental thing, I think, is that most economic models start with manufacturing and they start or they start with service delivery they start with essentially an efficiency driven model which of course for all sorts of puritanical reasons is kind of Uh, you know appealing to that kind of mindset and it starts from an assumed place which is that people exactly know what they want that people can tell you what it is they want that you can perfectly deliver that thing and that you know exactly how to create utility and the consumer knows exactly how much to pay for it and they have completely objective perception of their own means of optimizing their expected utility and what Roe said is that what we need, in fact, is not a kind of economic theory of the utility added by marketing. We need a marketing theory of the whole process, eyeballs back, of creating utility, for which you could read economic value or growth, for example. And we need to actually start with the human, the consumer, and work backwards. Whereas everything else works from a presupposed intermediate point where consumers have already told you what it is they want and need because in this model they're assumed to know it and that you know perfectly how to deliver it you have perfect metrics for the optimization of supplying that need and satisfying it and none of those things is true i mean fundamentally but the second problem is isn't it isn't only that those assumptions are wrong Uh, It's that they're creatively limiting as well, because if you make those assumptions, you'll never really experiment to the necessary degree. You'll never actually ask counterintuitive questions about what it is that people need because you assume that they already know. And so it narrows the solution space to a pinhead of effectively efficiency optimization. And as Drucker said, there's nothing worse than an organization efficiently doing something which it should not be doing at all. And so in Drucker, in Roalderson, I'd also argue in the concept of service-driven logic, which is another academic area, which, again, has received very little traction Um, in marketing. uh, Service-dominant logic, sorry, I said service-driven logic. Service-dominant logic is another academic idea which has received almost no attention whatsoever among practitioners. And all these concepts are essentially a criticism of the way we look at business and I, by the way, I mean most people look at business as a profit-maximizing enterprise. I really look at it as a problem-solving enterprise with very intelligently devised incentives. So I, you know, I, I wouldn't even accept the profit motive as the uh, as the best definition of the value created by business, for example, because it's too narrowly economic. And so, what what in a way it suggests is that. One, it's reassuring because we're not alone in believing what we believe. But on the other hand, it's slightly depressing because it means that every 20 years, we've got to say the same goddamn things all over again because for some strange reason, they don't really gain traction and they don't really take hold. And I think that's the really crucial thing, that the whole um, model that people use to understand what business is for, how it operates, what you should be doing within a business – uh, to improve its growth and value creation starts from a wrong-headed approach and then gets progressively worse. And it's only you know, if, it's only if you bake in the vagaries of human perception, the imprecision of humans' ability to actually give voice to their own needs and desires. It's only when you factor those things in that you get into really interesting, um, maximally creative territory. Rory,
0: just can I take take up you you talked about the economic models, and I guess they reflect the, the industrial revolution. Certainly the first three revolutions transformed the way that organizations and societies at large operate. The first one with the steam engine mechanising production, the second with energy sources enabling mass production, globalization, and the third, the digital, um, automating production and marketplaces with internet and mobiles, driving that forward. You could even go back and say there was a, there was a psychotropic revolution earlier, which was
1: tea, coffee, tobacco, things like that. But yes, carry yeah.
0: on. Yeah, Where we're going then, because you've got what we're living through at the moment, let's say 3.5 or the fourth revolution, where you have the, the technologies of AI, cloud, internet of things, biotech, that's increasing transparency and breaking down barriers and, and making us more interconnected. But what we're seeing now, you say psychotropic, is we're probably going through this psychological revolution where those behaviours become more important and we start to question some of those fundamental economic models and also the gatekeepers, certainly here in the West, who are more linear, I think we said this earlier, left brain, rational, in focus. So we move into this magic of a psychological revolution now where all of the questions we're asking can be boiled down to behaviour and putting a value on those behaviours but there's more ambiguity with that and that's what I think a lot of our gatekeepers are going to struggle with
1: No, I think that's true and of course part of the ambiguity comes from the fact that the origins of economics and the origins of industrialization were by almost, you know, by definition uh, took place at a period of great scarcity where people, to some extent, did know what they wanted because if you're hungry you do pretty much know what you want, okay And where they were capable of expressing it and where the generation of distributional or production efficiency was the principal problem to be solved. And now I don't think it is. By the way, I think in technology, the problem to be solved is often a behavioral problem, which is coordination. So Zoom only really took off because people only discovered the real benefits of Zoom when they were all forced to use it simultaneously. Because if we'd all discovered Zoom one at a time, I think we would have had a kind of video conferencing revolution, but it would have taken another 10 or 12 years. And the same thing, by the way, applies to solar panels. In the early days of solar panels, it's getting them to work well, reducing the price of manufacture and getting them more efficient. Now the remaining problem is getting people to put the bastards on the roof.
0: But here you require, I and mean, you talk about Zoom, you require some kind of mass or inter- well, some kind of intervention, here, yeah. the intervention was the global pandemic. Well, what my suggestion was,
1: find the Zoom revolution to take place. But I think I, I I'll, I'll never know reason. now because because when I met them in June, um, one of the things I said is <clears throat> the way to start is you need a period, rather like Lent or Ramadan, you need a simultaneous period of Zoom use for people to discover the true value. And so I suggested to them Now I'll never know whether this was a good idea or not, because the pandemic was, if you like, a better idea. But I said, make it Zoom, create the idea of Zoom Fridays. Lots of people were already working from home and just run a few ads that say, Thank Zoom, it's Friday. And basically... Make it explicit, the thing that everybody knew tacitly, which is a lot of people weren't actually commuting in on Fridays, and that actually we'd done this two years earlier. We turned Friday into a Zoom day for the behavioural science practice. Um, And so that probably would have been an intermediate solution. And then perhaps the behaviour would have spread to Monday or Thursday. But you're absolutely right. No, I mean, the pandemic solved the problem by forcing everybody to use it simultaneously because they had no choice. Uh, Incidentally, the fax machine, adoption of the fax machine was partly driven by price reduction, partly driven by technological improvements in transmission speed. But the real clincher was a postal strike in the UK. That was the thing that really drove... Because suddenly every business needed to have a fax. Because suddenly if your postal service might go out of action for two weeks, uh, you couldn't be dependent then On something that might disappear and so that that caused the facts to reach a necessary level of penetration where it reached critical mass
0: but i guess the challenge for us in the behavioral science is to move the science away and i know we have spoken about this in the past to move the science away from that of one of compliance control and comfort into growth and opportunity so that we're not reliant on these mass events these disruptions and behavioral science can help firms and societies drive themselves forward by thinking differently and doing things
1: in a different fashion it's and and probably it's probably an area where some social campaigns like dry january and stocktober are actually ahead of the game because they've yes. realized the importance of simultaneity
0: but yeah. also being quite different in their approach you talk about zoom fridays i mean let's go back about two you know, about two decades three decades but we had casual dress-down Fridays, in yeah. a way that the majority of office workers would dress and you know be in the office. In
1: the no one area. quite knows where that came from. There was a theory that it was Unilever on the grounds that people, if people wore casual clothes three days a week instead of uh, uh, instead of two, then their laundry use would go up because, of course, you yeah. get suits dry cleaned whereas you launder polo shirts.
0: I was working at P and G at the time, and I, I do remember dress down Fridays. And I was quite fortunate because I, I was on the Hugo Boss brand, had a wardrobe to choose from. But I think certainly on the continent in the US, the concept of dress down Fridays in the, the mid nineties gained traction, and you know, for many offices, it's it's part of your normal way of being now. Um, so you are right about having these events, whether it's October or November, mass events that can drive change, and unfortunately pandemic has shown that but i guess for all of us in organizations and leading organizations we have challenges but we settle for something else and you know there's five, five key points here for me you know we seek we often seek exponential growth yet we settle for the marginal and safe we often recruit or in agency land we brief to challenge yet we appoint or select
1: to fit I, know, I, I was talking to someone in Africa, South Africa where I said I'm not surprised they didn't hire you, you're probably too good and I literally, and that's why David Ogilvy said hire people bigger than you because I think he'd right. spotted in organisations the tendency to recruit a little bit small because so you don't want anybody to who rock the boat.
0: Point of seeking exponential growth, being able to challenge and then having, my third point really here is creative work that can be expressed and not policed by, let's say, rational left-ranked folk. We don't see the reverse happening. And then this comes down to a conversation that we have around difference and diversity. We paid lip service to it, yet it's those who are very cognitively different and probably, you know, in some of what David Ogilvie has said, those who are mavericks that can drive challenge and innovation.
1: No, so I mean, actually, David Ogilvy was interesting in that respect, in that he was ahead of the curve, undoubtedly, both on mixed uh, gender promotions, uh, his approach to gender. Um, He'd noticed personally that his mum was much happier when she started work, and um, so he he was uh, actually a notably early advocate of of that the ad industry in fairness we beat ourselves up but the ad industry compared to say you know actuarial firms or accountancy was 10 or 15 years ahead of the curve in fairness
0: it's really it's really the, the cognitive diversity to drive those creative solutions the the non-linear solutions the exponential growth and ultimately a cultural consideration my fifth point here would be that generally our gatekeepers are comfortable being comfortable yet we need to be uncomfortable being comfortable and comfortable with the uncomfortable so we can drive these original solutions not just rely on mass interventions but come up with creative solutions to second order problems and I think that's where the magic of behavioral science can play in not just the usual areas of compliance and control but opportunity and growth to deliver better solutions and you know ultimately a better society
1: and disproportionately so, by the way, when you've had huge bes- behavioral disruption, because the safe approach, which is to optimize on the past in the language of Gerd Gigerenza, you know, yeah. take pre-existing trends and extrapolate. Uh, which, you know, in times of great stability, isn't actually a bad predictive model for deciding what to do. But in times when people are actually reinventing themselves, you know, if you're in the business travel or the conferences industry, this is not a time to optimise on the past. That's a surefire way to go bust, you know, because the future isn't going to look the same.
0: But that that approach of taking existing trends and extrapolating, again, it's a very rational left-brain approach. You know, we've said this earlier on that not everything that matters can be measured and not everything that we measure matters. So we need to break that cycle and understand what matters. And for me, the magic, again, of behavioral science and what we're now calling creative consulting is being able to move from that traditional area of It may work. It could work. And it's rational. But ultimately, it's providing something that is marginal, that's steady, that's comfortable and moving down into, it may work, but it is non-linear, it's oblique. And we're gonna see more innovation, transformation come out in that area. I think that's the magical area that we can work in
1: with creative consulting. With a great asymmetry, with a great um, asymmetry that there's potentially a limit to how far you can cut costs, but there's no limit potentially to the extent to which you can grow. So simply understanding that asymmetry needs to be, you know, front and centre going forwards.
0: And hence, a lot of the discussions that we have, at a, certainly at a, a board and a senior level, are focused on cost drivers and have been focused on cost drivers. I think now we're going to be pushed into better discussing, debating, growth, demand, dealing with disruption and taking advantage of it.
1: So that's that asymmetry. Uh,
0: does play out
1: i mean there needs to be some sort of um governance criterion where you can be punished for creative lapses in other words a failure of the imagination as much as you can be punished for a failure of cost control um and um you know it's very interesting that if you think about it one of the things we don't have much of is Um, case studies of companies that have failed because they didn't market enough. And the very interesting reason for that is it's a kind of survivorship bias, which is when companies that don't do much marketing disappear, nobody notices. So I'll give you a lovely example of that. HTC, which was the largest mobile handset maker in the United States, outselling Apple with Android phones. It hasn't made a handset since 2018. Just as a clue to why that might be, its strap line was quietly brilliant <laughs> okay so there might be a little bit of a clue there interesting
0: no I, I, I will take that I'll take that on board and I guess the challenge then and I, I can remember HTC phones and they were they were very uh, good yeah, actually technically very good yeah they delivered I think their battery life um, was better than Apple at the time but did that resonate with consumers?
1: No, they came up against Samsung, which was noisily brilliant, and Samsung won, effectively.
0: Are hmm. you saying that's more a marketing quandary of shouting about it as opposed to being
1: oblique uh, in thinking? Uh, no, at a, very sim- at a very simple level, I think. Um, you have to be as noisy as you are. Uh, if you seek to have a large market share, you need to have a, a large share of um, mind. And a share of noise, if you want to call it that. So that's the thing that the IPA did, which shows that essentially your market share uh, tends to grow in line with your share of voice. And therefore, excess share of voice, the extent to which your uh, share of noise is outweighs your share of market, tends to predict growth. And, um, it, you know, it, it, it's a fairly robust finding, by the way. Um, And which effectively says you can't be quietly brilliant unless you want to remain as a tiny kind of niche. You know, there are hi-fi manufacturers which are quietly brilliant. You or I probably haven't heard of them. And amongst hi-fi connoisseurs, they're considered absolutely superb. But ultimately, you are going to remain in a tiny niche uh, unless you actually start making some noise. And what's very interesting, by the way, is that the tech industry's aversion to spending money on marketing therefore provides anybody who's willing to spend money on marketing with an opportunity for a a non-replicable source of advantage. Because tech people basically hate marketing.
0: But isn't that the basic quandary we have with technology, technology not serving us
1: the way it should do? Yeah, I think that's true. I th- I think that tech people have a kind of ideological purity, uh, I- uh, and in their model of the world, in which the be- the product with the best um, uh, the best objective features, as it were, you know, just as just as people felt the iPhone was cheating because they said you know the battery life isn't all that good, it doesn't have fantastically fast processing power, people are just buying it because they think it's cute to use. And the truth is that people were buying it because it was cute to use. And that's exactly what you should expect.
0: Absolutely. So making our, our services, products, technology be our servants as
1: opposed to the other way around. Because outside, I mean, engineers do tend to buy on, you know, there's, there's a category of camera lover called, a they're called a measure beta, And a measure beta is someone who buys cameras based on objective metrics, like the sort of seat, the size of the CMOS or the, you know, or the, you know, the speed of the processing power or the, the so-and-so, so-and-so. And what always char- characterizes um, measure baiters is they've always got the latest camera, but they take lousy photos. <laughs> okay. And that's, and motor, cycling would have a, 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 a disproportionately large group of people who would buy on kind of numerical qualities. And you know, undoubtedly, if you worked for as an engineer in the mobile phone industry, what you were looking at was these objective measures of what made a good phone. But they don't map very neatly onto what the consumer thinks of as a good phone.
0: But we're coming back to the, the same point. Not everything that we measure matters. And no. not Everything that matters can be measured. So we <laughs> need to better articulate what
1: matters. We can move forward. So, essentially, if we want to have economic growth, this is why behavioral science is essential and doubly essential at a time of great uncertainty, which is you need to have amygdala first optimization of businesses that understands what are the emotional uh, conditions it needs to create in order to generate more value. And if you start with an assumption of pre-existing need, as though that need is eternal and unchanging and optimise around that, then you'll do fine in the short term. In the long term, uh, you'll start by growing incrementally and then you'll end up by dying out. And that's why traditional consulting needs to adopt
0: or adapt. That's why traditional consulting needs to adapt, where we become more insight, behavioural, inspirational driven to move our organisations and societies forward. Completely right. ...the need for creative consulting. And
1: obviously organisations like they will be changed. And the standard incrementalist model, of course, has no room for creativity because it doesn't believe in the potential for uh, extraordinary leaps. Uh, because it is essentially a kind of reductionist and Newtonian system where nothing can be created or destroyed. What we know is that once psychology enters into the frame, uh, then the potential for magic, and I mean literally moonshot magic... Uh, exists almost everywhere.